0: Welcome to Dungeon Designer's Guild. I am your guild master, Stephen Leviathan. You are listening to the very first episode of the first season of this podcast, so let us take a moment to review the charter. Every episode on DDG Pod, we explore a tabletop role-playing game with the designer who created the game for us. On this show, we will host guests from every corner of the earth, ranging in notoriety from first-time Kickstarters to true living legends. You will hear the stories behind the tales we tell ourselves. You will learn the guests' backgrounds as both players and designers, discover the origin of a game, setting, or system, and delve into mechanics with the aim of giving listeners a better understanding of how to play each game. How much we discuss each topic is left up to the guests, and will therefore necessarily vary from episode to episode. Some installments will be more instructional, and some more autobiographical, but all will bring you interesting insights into the games that you have loved for years, and the games that you would love to play. Our first guest spoke to me from an old country across the Atlantic Ocean where he has designed a beloved OSR game. For those of you who do not know, the term OSR is an acronym for Old School Renaissance or Old School Revival, which represents a subset of role-playing games specifically based on or inspired by early versions of the original role-playing game Dungeons & Dragons. Since this is our first episode, and so that all listeners can have a better understanding of the terms involved in our conversations, I feel it is important to provide some context through a brief history of D&D. Created in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, by Gary Gygax, with the help of a few very important collaborators, d d was first published by Tactical Studies Rules, or TSR, and has been through several major incarnations since... The original version, often referred to as OD&D, was released in 1974 in a wooden box set, and was followed by the updated 1976 version, which has come to be called White Box, in reference to the color of the packaging. OD&D is the first example of a game based on the D20 system, a term used to describe the rules and mechanics in D&D and similar games, in which the iconic 20-sided die, along with several other polyhedral dice, is rolled to determine the outcomes of most actions. In 1977, we saw the release of two concurrent versions of the game. Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, or A and d with the counterpart D&D Basic, or Blue Box. Basic was further developed into Basic and Expert sets to allow Basic players access to higher character levels. This version, now referred to as B/X, first appeared in 1981 and was then succeeded in 1983 by the BECMI, or Beckme version, where BASIC received a red box, EXPERT a blue box, and three subsequent sets, called Companion, Master, and Immortal, were released in teal, black, and gold boxes. In 1989, TSR published a sequel to Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, which was called AD&D 2nd Edition. In 1997, TSR was acquired by Wizards of the Coast, or WOTC, a company famous for the creation of the Magic the Gathering collectible card game, and operations were closed in Lake Geneva and moved to the Pacific Northwest. WOTC then released D&D 3rd Edition in the year 2000, and around this time was also acquired by the toy manufacturer Hasbro. 3rd Edition was improved in a 2003 update, which they called D&D 3.5. With 3rd Edition came the important development of the Open Game License, or OGL, a public copyright license allowing other creators to freely and legally generate additional content based on, and for use with, D&D. Without this license, the OSR movement may not have been possible. In 2008, WotC released D&D 4th Edition, which was controversially a very different game from any of the previous versions, spurring many publishers and independent creators to develop new games based on the older rulesets. Then, in 2014, WotC released d and 5th Edition, which was more of a return to form, but still a unique game in its own right. 5th Edition is the most widely played version of d and and the most popular role-playing game today. While D&D was going through many changes over the last two decades, more and more players sought after games with a classic D&D aesthetic, leading to the development of the OSR community. The results are a variety of different games, from companies and independent designers, including everything from faithful reproductions of older systems, often referred to as retro clones, to reinventions using simplified or more modern mechanics, sometimes referred to as hacks. To describe the process of hacking away and replacing different rules and mechanics to create something new. Now, by some definitions, OSR games even include games from entirely different genres that still harken back to an early D&D core. The game we discuss in this episode is an artful reimagining of older systems that any role player can appreciate. Thank you for bearing with me through that tabletop RPG history lesson, and without further ado... Let's get on to our main event. Today on Dungeon Designers Guild, we have encountered a deft dungeon delver and designer of White Hack, a game that received drive-through RPG gold medal best-selling status within days of the latest edition's release. And the very first guest, to ddg pod christian marshdam christian welcome to the show how are you this evening
1: i'm doing fine hello thank you for having me i feel very honored to be here the
0: honor is all ours thank you for taking the time to speak with us at the guild hall today where in the wide world are you calling from
1: i'm calling from gothenburg uh, sweden that's in the south of uh, sweden it's the second uh, biggest city in in the country I don't know if it's famous for anything really, uh, uh, other than being the second biggest city in a small country.
0: I think it's a it's a recognizable name. Um,
1: is that where you're from originally? No, I'm uh, from uh, some place even smaller. I'm uh, from a very small town in the southern highlands, I guess you could say, also in the south of Sweden. Uh, the only reason to to go to the town where i was born is uh, is if you're passing through on a train and you see it for like two, 3 minutes and then you move on
0: okay is it is it near to uh, gothenburg uh,
1: i guess by uh, by american standards it would be near it's like a 2 hours drive but uh, in sweden that's quite a long <laughs> drive i don't know why really <laughs> because we have cars and everything but uh, it's considered to be uh, reasonably far yes there's no way that you would live in my uh, in the time where I was born and work in Gothenburg and, and do that trip every day. Nobody does that
0: okay. when did you start gaming?
1: Wow, uh, well, uh, I would say maybe in. 79 or 80 I had this older cousin who was one of the first role players in in Sweden and uh, I remember distinctly we, we went to his place uh, for a family reunion, and uh, he was like 13 or 14 or something and he, and he told me about this adventure he had had in a game in a castle and I was mesmerized but uh, I, I couldn't read English or anything and there were no Swedish role playing games so uh, well, I went home and uh, didn't think more about it until the next summer when uh, there was this guy who came to our summer, summer house. And he had a copy of, I think it was the first Greyhawk uh, module for, for uh, original D&D. And I still couldn't read English. I was like seven at the time. But I traded it for a wobbler bait. And then I stared at it the whole summer until I made my own... Uh, well, very rudimentary game that I could play with my friends on you know, a piece of paper with, with the squares on it, and you would have a labyrinth and move around in, in the labyrinth and find treasure and stuff. All, all made up from what my cousin had told me, but that was my first gaming experience, I and mean, it wasn't until years later when there was games in Swedish that, that I could actually play uh, the commercial game. And uh,
0: were those um,
1: original Swedish games, or were those
0: uh, games coming to you in translation?
1: Uh, well, kind of a translation, really, because there was this uh, there was this box called uh, Worlds of Wonder, I think, the first uh, universal uh, basic role-playing game. The, the first basic role-playing game was RuneQuest, I believe, but then the, uh, calcium made a box called Worlds of Wonder. And I think that the, the guy who was responsible for the first Swedish game, he was living with, uh, is it Steven Perrin or something, that made the uh, basic role-playing. Uh, and uh, he lived with him uh, in, his, uh, in his house, and he was one of the playtesters of the first uh, Court of Cthulhu game mm-hmm. as well. But when he returned to Sweden, he made a translation of Parts of Worlds of Wonder, uh, and it became a game called... Uh, Dragons and Demons, <laughs> not very original. <laughs> but uh, that was the first Swedish role-playing game that it was published in 1982. Uh, and that was the one that I, that I played. Okay,
0: and so that was the first Swedish game. Did role-playing become very popular in Sweden after that?
1: Well, not right after, but yeah. Uh, I would say, though, that there was a, a generation of role-players from the beginning in in Sweden. uh, I have actually traced the first imports of uh, D&D into Sweden. They were made already in 1974 with the the wooden box. So, and there was a a wargaming culture in place in Sweden in the 70s as well. So my cousin played, he played uh, chainmail and uh, all the first uh, D&D. Uh, supplements and stuff like that. So there was al- already a, a Swedish role-playing game culture when, when the first game in Swedish <laughs> were published. But after that, in the, first, uh, in the early years, in the 1980s, it, it grew exponentially. And in 1984, 1985, was it was like really a big, uh, big huge movement. Uh, in Sweden. It was sold in, in, in all the toy stores and stuff like that.
0: And has it been um, very popular since then? Obviously there's a lot of uh, games coming out of Scandinavia. These days it, it seems like there's there's plenty coming to the States. Um, would you say that we're in sort of a, a renaissance for that, or has it been consistently popular? Uh,
1: no, I wouldn't say it has been consistently popular. Uh, it's uh, Of course it's a bit of a, a renaissance, yes. But that goes for all the world, I, I believe, but there was this, uh, what do you call it, a, a dip in, in the interest for role-playing games in the 90s, but uh, there were still a lot of games being published during the 90s, and uh, maybe in the late 90s there was nothing coming out, but then in the early uh, years after uh, 2000 there were no games coming out, and uh, perhaps another small dip in 2008. But since then, we've been growing steadily. And, and I think that it's due to that first uh, boom uh, in the early 80s that we have a very strong growth and culture uh, in Sweden. And and it's great to see that it's like uh, being introduced abroad to a, a much larger uh, extent than, than ever before today.
0: Absolutely. We are seeing... Um... Uh, it seems a lot of popular games uh, in the states are coming out of scandinavia obviously getting translated into uh, english when they get here but also you know other parts of europe and you know the uk as well um so yeah. that is that is great to see so uh what other types of games um other than the ones that we've mentioned do you enjoy playing or did you enjoy playing in the past
1: well i would say to be honest uh, well I've i've played a lot of games i have plenty of indie games in my, you know, on my shelves, and, and uh, I have a tremendous amount of Shadowrun <laughs> modules uh, on my shelves, but uh, uh, I'm a pretty traditional guy, I would say. I, I enjoy a relaxed, uh, traditional role-playing game, perhaps with... Uh, uh, I like a European touch, like in the, uh, the first uh, Warhammer edition, uh, something along... Those lines, but my, my favorite adventure, that would be uh, a translation or an adaptation, really, of, uh, I don't know if you remember, but there was a, uh, an early 80s module for d and called uh, Against the Cult of the Reptile God" or something. Uh, I think Douglas Niles. Uh, but, but it was adapted for uh, a Swedish uh, science fiction game called Mutant, the first version of what is now Mutant Year Zero. And it was published in 1985, and in that box, in that first box, was an adventure, that uh, was called uh, Adventures in Mosul. Mos- uh, Mos- I don't know how to pronounce it in English. But that was my favorite adventure ever, and I ran it uh, many times, and uh, now I have kids of my own, and I think that my daughter must have played that adventure, like 15 times or something uh, as she grew up and every time it's the same dudes uh, there's a like a bridge in the middle of the adventure where they are uh, collecting money if you want to pass you have to pay some money and every time that my daughter gets to that part of the adventure they die each and every time it's a great adventure uh, uh, that will be my favorite i guess
0: excellent you said you like traditional games uh, and you said with a european touch like like Warhammer? Do you mean the Warhammer role-playing game? Do you mean the um, the miniatures game? Do you mean both?
1: Uh, I'm terrible at at miniatures. I mean uh, role-playing games. Uh, I, I really suck at everything that is miniature-related and strategy games and stuff like and stuff like that. I I can like forget Germany for a whole turn if I if I play a <laughs> strategy game. So it's it's always been the role-playing games for me, and and I think that the first. Uh, warhammer fantasy role-playing game it, it has a very distinct european touch it's a bit gritty and uh, it's a lot of humor and, and, and i think i'm still looking for that kind of feeling in the games that i uh, that i play
0: sure and do you stick mostly to fantasy or do you play um are we, do you also play some science fiction and horror as well
1: uh, I don't play a lot of horror games, to be honest. Uh, I do like Call of Cthulhu, but uh, I'm not very much into into horror games. Science fiction I play as well, but I think that I, uh, I tend to return to fantasy. Uh, it's like, I don't know why, really. Uh, maybe it's because uh, there are some scenes and some emotions that you need fantasy to do it well, I think you need magic you, uh, I don't need a lot of it, but it needs to be there or i'm not I'm not quite happy, I guess. so uh, mostly fantasy yes yeah. Excellent,
0: okay. and so um you mentioned against the cult of the reptile god as a, a favorite campaign that you've returned to um over and over again. It sounds like uh do you have any favorite characters that you remember playing at all? In particular my characters
1: tend to die. Uh, I think that I, <laughs> uh, I, I really like making new characters. Uh, and most of my characters, well, uh, I, I play a bit uh, recklessly, I guess. I'm um, often the, the dude who says, I just go in, or I want to check that out, and everyone goes, no, don't do it! But I do it anyway, and consequently my characters die. But uh, I never (laughs) feel bad about that because I I really, really, really like making new characters and coming up with new concepts and uh, see if I can uh, make it like... I can can enjoy power again now now and again too and make a really powerful uh, character by abusing the roots uh, I guess. Sure,
0: okay. Well, um, you had mentioned that when you were... Younger, you'd been introduced to role playing games. Um, you tried to recreate it, uh, you made a very simple game to run for your friends, was that right?
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think it was when looking at the stuff that uh comes out on the uh Ozar scene today, I think I, I did a quite good job for a seven year old. It was like I can remember it, it was. Really, really simple. You you just uh, draw uh, drew a, a labyrinth on a piece of paper with, with squares on it, and then you had the players start at each end of the labyrinth, and they couldn't see the map, but uh, they could uh, decide if their character was supposed to go left or right, if they ride at a crossroads or something in the labyrinth. And once and again, there was a monster, and they had to roll a Uh, a d6 uh, and uh, if it was uh, over 4 they killed the monster otherwise they died and and the one who who got the treasure first, the treasure was always placed in the middle of the labyrinth, he won the game and that was the whole concept that I I made but it was perfectly playable we played it for like one or two entire summers Uh, well maybe it was my best game, (laughs) it's still my best (laughs) most playable game, I don't know
0: um I mean, that does sound, uh, sounds like it'd be a lot of fun. Have you been designing games since you were seven or did you, did you return to it at some point, return to game design?
1: Well, uh, I guess you, you have to say that I returned to it in earnest uh, very much later, but actually I, I think I, I, I have been designing games uh, ever since. I mean, shortly after that first attempt, uh, there was this, uh, what do you call it? Uh, Home computer revolution. Everyone uh, in the middle class had some sort of computer at home, and I remember my first program in BASIC on it was called the ABC 80, the computer, and it was called uh, Desdemonia. My program was called, and and, uh, you were supposed to go into a castle and you would answer a lot of. Questions and uh, encounter monsters, and if you if you uh, provided the right answers, you ended up at the top of the castle to kill the demon named Destemona. So I made that one. I was a bit older than maybe ten or something, uh, and I I can I can like trace my uh, path as a game designer, uh, well, throughout my life, I guess. But I didn't publish anything in earnest until uh, I think two thousand and six was my first.
0: In between, though, you designed a computer game called Desdemonia?
1: Yeah, it was a simple uh, computer game, text-based uh, computer game written in, uh, in BASIC. My, my mother had an education as a programmer in the 60s. Uh, she she taught me how to use BASIC and uh, uh, Pascal, I believe. The name is. But <laughs> she always insisted that I should really learn Algol uh, or, uh, or Fortran. <laughs> Both like you don't teach a, a nine-year-old Algo, or often <laughs> She so she was always always a bit uh, what do you call it? Malcontent that I would was only doing basic on the computer. But yeah, I I, I did some programming when I was uh, when I was a kid.
0: And, uh, did you keep up with programming, or is that something that um, you you've moved past?
1: Uh, I guess in a way uh, you could say that uh, I can still if you like hold a gun to my head I guess I could provide you with uh, some Lisp code or a Perl script or, or something, but for a very long time I didn't touch uh, Programming I would say all through adolescence uh, up until I was like 28 or 29 I ended up next to a, a Guy at a place where I worked and one day when I I uh, I came to work he had swapped out the entire operative system on my computer there was no windows on it any longer it was a linux distribution on it instead and he said i think this w- could be right for you christian and i said well, what do i do and i said and he and he went you just type m a n this is a, it's a bash command for manual and i was about all the uh, direction that he gave me. But after that, I kind of picked up programming a little bit. So uh, if you force me nowadays, I can probably provide something simple.
0: Interesting. Okay. Just going back to the Desdemonia game, was that something that you just kind of distributed to your friends? Or is that something that went out on the internet? How did that work?
1: or this was in 1983 so there was no internet instead you you had to record it on on a on a tape recorder (laughs) and you could bring uh, uh, the tape to one of your friends and he could he could run it Uh, i don't think i ever distributed that one i did make another one though that was called duel and it was not a uh, it it was not an adventure game it was a space action game on a texas instruments uh, T-I-99-4-A, I even remember the name, and that one I distributed to my friends and we played it, but uh, I was never, uh, they never went far, my games, like at the most to my neighbors and perhaps uh, a kid at school.
0: Excellent, all right. Um, so um, then uh, going back to that 2006 game, uh, what was the the first um, tabletop game that you published?
1: Uh, it was called Oktoberlandet, uh, um, which means uh, the October land, and it was, uh, I, I guess you could say, uh, Russian Revolution meets Narnia. Uh, it's an urban fantasy game, uh, and uh, I guess you could say a late steampunk uh, game uh, that I published in, in 2006. And The thing about it was that uh, the entire game world was written in the form of in- uh, how do you say that? Intra, get it? in-game texts written from written by unreliable authors. So you didn't have any any official description, any true description of what the game world was like. You only had these letters and sermons and poetry and. Uh, uh, laws and all kinds of different texts and and you would the gaming group would kind of piece the game Their version of the game world together from those texts uh, And it was quite a cool game. I still like that game a lot and uh, what was cool about it was that uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Nils Hintze, uh, uh, one of the most famous uh, uh, RPG Authors uh, in Sweden today. He's, he's the guy who wrote Ted uh, from the Loop and Vass and uh, what else to be right.
0: Some met. other things for uh, free league probably. Yeah,
1: exactly. He's one of their freelancers, but but he started out as uh, he, he wrote uh, adventures for my first game of Tubalanda. and also Johan Moore, uh, the one of the designers behind. Uh, Merkborg or Borg I don't mean, even know how you say that in English. He was one of the early fans of Oktoberland as well, so one of the greatest things about this game was that I got to know these guys early on in 2006.
0: Uh, we just say uh, Merkborg. I, I don't think anyone tries to pronounce the umlaut. I'm not sure how you're supposed to say it. Merk <laughs> Mörkborg. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's that's a great attempt.
0: <laughs> okay. So, a lot of these uh very popular Scandinavian games that we're seeing today um are written by people that you've known for a, quite a while it sounds like?
1: Well, especially Nils. Uh I, I didn't uh, talk a lot to uh, to Johan uh, back then, but I, I talked a lot to uh, to Nils. Uh, and I I've been friends with Nils for for quite a while now and it's quite a blessing because it's a very He's a very talented uh, and very friendly and nice guy. Uh, and Johan is too. I-, I learned a lot from uh, uh, Johan when we worked on the second edition of Oktoberlandet, which came out in 2016. And uh, I asked, it. Was, that time it was published by Friedrich Publishing, and I asked them if I could have Johan uh, specifically because I knew that he was a fan of Oktoberlandet and I also knew that he had been doing layout work for uh, Simbarum, another Swedish game, uh, now published by Swedish Publishing as well. But he did a lot of—he uh, did all the the layout work and all the illustrations—and uh, it turned out really great. Uh, if you Google it, I think that you can find uh, some pictures on his Instagram page where it shows off uh, the graphic design of. Uh, second edition of Octoberland, and it was a great thing to, to follow his work during that process. Uh, I learned a lot from that.
0: Excellent. Okay. And so, um, did Octoberland uh, contribute to, um, your, your future games that you designed as well, or, um, what, what came after Octoberland? Was it right into Whitehack?
1: I did an attempt uh, I made an attempt to make uh, I guess you would call it a kind of old school uh, game in 2011 called Book of Dead or Dead's Book in, in Swedish uh, and it went quite far it was a public beta and I had illustrations but I, I didn't like how it turned out so I, I pulled uh, I, I pulled it uh, I didn't publish it the finished version only the public uh, beta but uh, I would say that there's like uh, in in all the games that I that I make, there's something about do uh, you say class struggle or class opposi- opposition. Uh, it's a streak of uh, struggle between social classes in in all the games that I make. And that is very much in Octoberland, and you can see it also in, in White House. And in my uh, science fiction game, Soldekorspace, it's always there, and I would say that that is perhaps the the greatest similarity between between the games.
0: Okay, so are the other are the the science fiction game in Octoberland? Are those D twenty games, or are they based on different systems?
1: The first Octoberland, uh, first Octoberland, that game was a percentage system. So that one is not like White Hack or Solikars Wake at all. Solikars Wake is quite similar to White Hack mechanically, but it's more in depth and it's much more extensive. I mean, White Hack, the current White Hack is hundred and sixty pages, while uh, the current Solikars Wake is close to seven hundred pages. I think.
0: Where did um, where did White Hack? begin obviously we have this osr movement today and everything um but where when did you first decide to to start white hack
1: i think that it started with i had this old uh, this old friend i had my old gaming group where i'm the youngest the, the other guys are like some of them are, are more than 10 years older than me and uh, we had been playing a long D&D campaign and then we stopped for a few years and i wanted to pick it up but my uh, one of my older uh, gaming friends in that group said uh, look man i I can't do it i can't relearn all those rules i don't have the time for it i'm too old Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, now how do i solve this and i needed a game that was easy to pick up and which could run all the stuff that we wanted to run without using uh, all those rules that you would have to relearn so I, I guess that's where the idea for white hack started and at, about at the same time my daughter was uh, well she was growing up and she was getting ready to play her first role-playing game she could have been like three <laughs> that's where i think that you should start with uh, the kids uh, and um, obviously playing a uh, uh, a traditional D and D game is is too hard when you when you're three, so I wanted to make something for my old friends and for my young daughter, and that's how, how White Hack started.
0: Excellent. Okay. And so, what other than D and D were there any other games that contributed majorly to the development of White Hack?
1: Well, obviously, there's a there, there's a tradition of hacking D and D that started. Very early in the seventies, so I I I really want to to mention uh, Arduin. I would like to mention uh, what's it called, Uh, World of Dungeons. I would like to mention uh, uh, there was there were two games uh, with the hack name before White Hack that came out in in the late two thousand and nine, two thousand and two thousand and ten. One was called Red Box Hack, and one was called Old School Hack. And I, I think it's important to to say that White Hack came out in, two, self, in 2013, but it was by no means the first uh, hack game. So I looked at the games that came earlier, and I named White Hack in the same vein, in, in that tradition of, of hacking d and so, well, I, I would guess they are. You, you'd have to say that they are in great influences on Blackpack.
0: Sure. Okay. So, whereas like Red Hack would have been a, a hack of Red box, is White Hack a, a hack of white box? Is that the idea behind the name?
1: Yeah. I, I started with, uh, I read, um, there was this clone. It's called, the name is White Box, and it was written by Matt Finch and Mark Bragg in 2008. And I looked at that, and uh, I started making my own game, uh, looking at that uh, game. So I, I named it White Hack in the hack tradition, and White uh, after White Box, which in turn is named after the first actual d d White uh, Box. So that's how, how the name came about.
0: All right, so uh, we had a, a few different games there that contributed to, to White Hack. Is there any particular media that fed into WhiteHack um, other than sort of Appendix N in general?
1: I don't know. Uh, I'm a, a literature scholar, so um, I read a lot, uh, and I, I I like fiction in all kinds of, of media. Like movies, and uh, I like to play you know, Game Boy games, uh, stuff like that, so... Uh, all kinds of, uh, of media contribute to, to White Hack, uh, though not mechanically. Uh, it, it's the stories from, from fiction that, that contribute.
0: Excellent. Okay. And so, if you were to sort of summarize White Hack in a brief pitch for somebody, how would you describe the game?
1: Well, I would say it's a, a brief uh, but complete uh, fantasy game that you can use to, to run all your stuff. That was that would be the, the shortest description I could give. I would also say that it's a game in the I call it the original uh, tradition, uh, and by that, of course, I mean the first game from nineteen seventy four. But it, it's more than that. It's a, it's a tradition that you you can trace throughout uh, the decades, and you can see a lot of games made uh, that are similar to 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 D and D uh, and. Whitehack is clearly a game in that tradition. But to me, that, is, that means that you try to uh, move that tradition forward. Whitehack is not the clone. And I would say that as well in my description, because uh, if you expect the clone, you're, you're going to be disappointed. But, but it's a brief uh, and complete fantasy game in the original tradition that you can use to run, just about all your stuff.
0: Sure, and you had mentioned that it's 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 certainly not a clone. It has its own uh, its own mechanics, its own identity there. Uh, in the manual itself, at least in the third edition, uh, you do explain that to player. But for any listeners that haven't had a chance to pick up White Hack, what would the average gamer you know somebody who may have only played D and D what would they find familiar mechanically in the game?
1: Well. Uh you would immediately recognize the attributes, you know, strength, constitution, dexterity, charisma, etc. You would recognize uh, armor class and hit points. You would recognize the d20. Uh, You would have uh, attack rolls. You would have magic. So there's a lot to recognize, but each of these things may also work a little bit differently than what you're used to.
0: Sure. So what is what is um, different about it? What's unique to it? Uh, what innovations did you did you make on the uh, sort of tried and true D20 OSR
1: systems out there? Well, there, there are very few things that are new under the sun. So uh, I want to start by saying that uh, almost always you can find that some dude in the 70s came up with a really bright idea and then somebody forgot it and, and now it's in white hat. Uh, so uh, I'm not sure I can take credit for uh, for much that is in uh, Whitehack. That's not for me to say. But uh, I would like to, perhaps you could uh, start with armor class. Uh, you're probably used to having an ascending uh, armor class, or if you if you play a lot of OSR games, you might have one of the ascending versions. Uh, so Whitehack has armor class as well, but it starts from zero. So if, you don't, if you're not wearing anything, uh, any armor, uh, you have armor class uh, 0. And if you're wearing uh, like a, a chain mail, I think it's is, is 4. And if, you're, if you have a shield as well, you, you will have armor class 5. So when you attack someone in white Hack, you have an attack value that is a measure of how good you are at, at fighting. Uh, So let's say I have an attack value of 12 and I'm facing someone with armor class 3. In order to hit that enemy, I would have to roll uh, above uh, the armor class, uh, so at least 4, but also equal to or under my attack value, which is 12. So 4 to 12 is a hit, anything else is a miss. Uh, And and that's a a great thing because it means that there's no math involved. when, you're, when you attack someone at the table. The player and the referee immediately knows when looking at the die uh, if you hit or not. And I mean, adding a few points, uh, making an addition, it's not a big thing. But if you do that like uh, 30 times uh, or 50 times in an evening, it becomes a lot. So that tiny difference in our armor classes uh, is handled it's a typical example of a small but still important improvement that you can find in White Hat.
0: Absolutely, I think that's a a great mechanic. It, it makes a lot of sense, and it's it's just one of the many things in there that makes this uh, makes this game you know very easy to play. Just the absence of you know having to figure out different modifiers and just going with you know here's the range you have to hit it.
1: Yeah, and it's typical of one of the things that a kid can do. That that's my daughter that you can see in there. <laughs> She's three and she can't add uh, yet, <laughs> but she can look at a die and 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 she can like look at the table and say, yeah, I I hit that cobalt dad, and she runs to to her mother. I hit the cobalt mother. Yeah.
0: Excellent. So, um, and and with your system, it's it is a roll-under system, which um a lot of OSR games are, but traditional D D is not. Yeah. And so. Well, I guess is there anything in particular that appealed to you about the the roll under mechanic? Was it just that it was simpler?
1: Perhaps uh, the Swedish tradition. Uh, Swedish games traditionally uh, are based on on basic role play, uh, which is a roll under system, and I think that it, it shows in White Hack, even if uh, it's in the range of one to twenty rather than one to. 100 but yeah it's also uh, simpler and it's you can use it I use it also in the auction uh, mechanic uh, that I could mention as well as something that is different in Whitehack that you don't see you don't see auction mechanics in many games at all and uh, I know of no other game than Whitehack that has this particular auction mechanism so the the auction uses uh, the rule under system and a version of the armor class system uh, and you uh, let's say i'm the referee and you're a player and uh, we are in a chase uh, and we want to see who uh, who catches up or who escapes and uh, i might start by saying that uh, i've been two meaning that uh, i promise to uh, roll above two but still under an appropriate attribute for the chase like dexterity if we are running so, your option as a player would be to either make a higher bid, like 3 or 4 or 5, uh, or to say, okay, dude, I stop at a 1 bid. And when everyone is content and they have made their bids, the highest uh, bidder gets the roll first. And if he uh, makes the roll, he wins the auction. But if he doesn't make the roll, uh, if he fades, you win the auction without having to roll. And that's an example of how the roll under mechanic and the armor class mechanic can be combined into something unique, which is very flexible because you can use the auction mechanic to, to run a chase like this, but you could also use it to, like if you have this huge fight against 200, there are a lot of fantasy scenes where where that occurs and it would be very tedious to fight your way through 100 or 50 or, or even 20. With the auction mechanic, you can play it out in like a... Two minutes, and it would be exciting, and it would be uh, have a, a strategic element provided by uh, the mechanic.
0: And and with the auction mechanic, there was a um, a roll of a d six that was involved, right?
1: Yeah, I had to add that in the second edition. That was the one of the mistakes in the first edition, because if you're the referee, you have all the cards, you know the stats of. Uh, the NPCs and uh, you're probably pretty familiar with the player's stats, so you would have an unfair advantage when making your bids. It would be easier for you to calculate what the optimal bid would be for your NPCs, whereas the player doesn't know the stats of the NPCs and would be at a disadvantage. So in second edition Whitehack I added a hidden uh, D6 to be added to uh, the attributes used in, in the auction. So there's an element of uncertainty that levels the what it, levels the ground. Uh, well, makes the referee and the, and the player more equal when, when making their the bids.
0: Okay, so the player rolls the, the d6 and hides the roll, it says.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: are they literally just covering the die with their hand and not like... Are, are they aware of what they've rolled or is everyone blind to what they've rolled?
1: No, they are aware. You, you always know your own stats but you don't know the stats of uh, of your competitors in, in an auction. So I've seen I've seen players who, who hide the die uh, with their hand or use uh, a cup or something like a piece of paper, but they hide it in, in some way. It doesn't matter how.
0: Okay, where is the D6 added in then,
1: I guess? In the example that I mentioned before, it will be added to dexterity before starting making your bids. So we're in this chase, you have dexterity, Twelve and uh, my NPC uh, has the equivalent of dexterity thirteen. And I roll two, and you roll four. You would have a total of sixteen, and I would have—now oh, I forget the numbers. I would have fifteen, uh, and that would be the actual uh, stat that we used in the auction, and that we also used when uh, when rolled the dump.
0: Excellent. So the, uh, the the referee then doesn't know the upper limit, so I say I bid four, they don't know that I've, I've rolled a six and I now can roll anything between four and 18. Yeah. They just know what the minimum is. Okay. Excellent. All right. So, and I think that that, that auction mechanic is quite interesting. Uh, you said that you don't believe that that, and as you mentioned before, it's, it's hard to say, uh, but you don't believe that that exists elsewhere in the OSR community. That's something that's unique to White Hack, right?
1: I think so. I haven't seen it. And if it's in another game, it come, probably comes from, from Whitehack. There are a few games that uh, are inspired by, uh, by Whitehack. But I would say that's, that's unique to, to my game. And I also think that I didn't claim that Whitehack was an OSR game until pretty late. The, the label, the OSR label was placed on Whitehack by uh, OSR. The players, but there still there are still OSR players who, who don't consider white knight to be an OSR game. They, uh, they want OSR games to be closer to the the original, uh, the originals. So maybe maybe they would say that the auction mechanic doesn't belong in an OSR game because there's nothing like that in in the original in the original games. And, and that's fine by me. It's not my place to say it, to put that kind of label on my game. I only say it now because there are quite a few players, uh, well, there are thousands of players who, who call white hat in OOSL games. So I, I feel that I can say it now, too. But I, I, I think it's fair to, to mention that there are those who, who don't consider it to be in OOSL games. Well,
0: I have yet to come across anyone that uh, wouldn't consider white hack to be um a welcome member of the the osr community but I, I get what you're saying i mean there i guess there are players out there that are only interested in uh what you would call the, the sort of retro clones um and not interested in um you know something with with more um more improvements upon the uh, uh older rule sets and things like that so
1: yeah but well, i can understand that i like those games too and i think there's it's a different kind of experience to play something that uh, that is original or very very close to the original, just with some very slight improvements. So uh, I have no problem with with that at all.
0: Okay, well, as far as the the systems we talked about, it's a D twenty system. Um, it's roll under. It's rather rules light, you would say, right?
1: Well, I think at least it would be it would be hard to call it uh, rules heavy. Shadowrun First Edition is rules heavy, uh, White Hack isn't, but it's also not a it's not a simplistic game. I think that White Hack has. I often come across players who are surprised by uh, the amount of crunch in in White Hack. and they tell me that I never expected this rule set to have this much nuance. Uh, so I think it's it's easy to be surprised by Whitehack if you expect. Uh, a simplistic game, but yeah, I think that you you have to say that its rules, like after all, in comparison to the systems in, in general.
0: Right, and as you as you put it, it's 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 nuanced because while the rules have um, a lot of facets to them, they're all still relatively easy to to grasp. It's not um, you know tables and tables and tables of just confusion that you get with you know some games out there so
1: I, I, hope, I hope it's, it's uh, reasonably easy to, to pick up mm. and you don't have to pick everything up at once I think that's also a, a mistake that you, you can make with white practice that you, you look at this thing book and you think that well I'm going to read this tonight and uh, tomorrow I'm going to use all of it at once <laughs> you run into a lot of trouble if you, if you try that if you take it slow though I think it's an easy game to pick uh, to pick up. I've played a lot with kids and uh, well kids are bright and smart, and they can take a lot of crunch more crunch than a fifty year old but uh, still <laughs> they have an easy time with with white hack and I'm not the only one to play with kids i I know plenty of guys who have played extensively with with kids and uh, they tend to like white, hack, which makes me very very happy
0: okay and then as far as um sorry of the i you know the tools that you need for the game other than the book um you specify two d twenties and three d six and that's that's it for the dice right yeah,
1: yeah that's it, and that's all you need if you have the the notebook edition, you don't even need dice, you can use the paper dice that uh, are included in in the game
0: okay, and so um you don't need cards or counters or anything like that, right
1: no, you don't need them, but uh i said before that i suck at miniatures and i meant that i suck at uh, at strategic miniature games but actually whitehack has full rules for the use of miniatures and uh, a grid or a battle map or my favorite is using uh, is it called kinetic sand and magic sand or something like that it's it's a special kind of sand that you can buy in kid stores that's very easy to uh, to mold and to tidy up once you're done so you can put it on on a table or uh, something flat and y- and you can like form <laughs> caves and paths and little houses really really quickly and then you can put uh, miniatures in there and, and use a string or something to, to measure distances it's really fast and it, it, it's great to use with uh, with white hat so while you don't have to have all those uh, things that all you can you can play uh, ever of the mind style uh Vitek also has full uh, full rules for the use of miniatures, miniatures and battle and, and uh, sand boxes <laughs> i don't know what it's called
0: <laughs> sure absolutely for um uh, tabletops and um obviously it works very well in a, a virtual tabletop these days with everyone um trapped at home as well so
1: I think so. I haven't tried uh, myself uh, playing on the computer. I'm while, while I while I know how to program a little bit, I, I also... I usually try to... role well, playing games for me is uh, some time away from screens, usually. But obviously the, the pandemic has made me change my ways a bit uh, about that. And I, I'm very curious about the online gaming community, so... Uh, one of these days, pretty soon, I'm going to try to play uh, online.
0: Well, definitely, I would uh, I'd recommend it. Yeah, with uh, communication tools where they're at. You know, it's not exactly the same, but I would say it's just as fun.
1: So. Cool. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that.
0: Yeah, so... Okay, so we... Uh, let's see, we talked about sort of the skill checks, and uh, we did talk about combat, hitting the AC, those sorts of things. In this, you also... Develop your own weapons. Is that correct?
1: Well, you can. Uh, I included in third edition uh, the uh, the possibility to create new weapons, and I also included some extra rules if you want to run by hack uh, in some kind of modern setting or science fiction setting. So there are, uh, there are guidelines to make your own weapons, and I don't think it's it's very hard. You can you can look at the weapons uh, that are already in the game, and you can imitate. So, sure, you, you, you can make your own points. Okay. As
0: far as the magic system goes, uh, this is something I'm very interested in, White Hack. It looks like the wizards, any sort of magic user, has to expend HP. Is
1: that correct? Yeah. Uh, you use hit points to, uh, to do magic in, in White Hack. Or well, at least that's the mo- most usual way to, to do magic. Uh, and it's a kid's favorite if you play the wise class uh, you you have slots uh, that your character gets as she progresses through the levels and for each slot you can pick a miracle wording which is a short phrase like uh, Patroc, demon of passage or uh, I make bombs or uh, <laughs> uh, you know, pure light wounds or something traditional you, you can basically just jot down a few words uh, that you can use as a miracle wording and uh, when you want to cast the spell or use a miracle you you look at your character's uh, vocation which is uh, what she does in the game world and you look at the wording uh, and then you tell the referee what you want to do with it so let's say for example that you have you're playing a, a wise demonologist, and one of your miracle wordings is Patrick, Demon of Passage. And you arrive at the door in a dungeon, and you can go, uh, I'm going to use Patrock to open the door for me. Okay, says uh, This is a quite uh, This is quite a simple uh, use of a miracle. So uh, I let you off with uh, two hit points, and you go... Oh, dude that's way too much i only have four hit points left uh, what if i include a rare ingredient and uh, the referee might go yeah okay if you do if you use your last piece of uh, hair from a troll <laughs> i let uh, patrick the demon of passage open the door for a single hit point and you say okay pay your hit point and the door open
0: okay and so you would mentioned um he had referred to uh, the the wizard in that scenario as a as a wise player, and that's something that we haven't we haven't covered is the the class structure. There are three base classes that uh, players are choosing from, right?
1: Yeah, and that's one of the things that uh, that is both similar and, and uh, different in my, uh, compared to uh, a D anD D game. Like in in a, a traditional game, your class would be your character concept so if you play a thief it's a thief and if you play a wizard it's a wizard and the class is equals the character concept but that's not the way it works in white hack in white hack you have a groups system to begin with so uh, you can uh, pick a species uh, or a vocation or an affiliation like a social group is one of your groups so uh, every player uh, every character uh, has a vocation that is what it does so uh, your wizard or your thief would be a vocation, it's not your class. Class uh, is how you do stuff, how you resolve them mechanically. So for each character concept that you can come up with, you can play it in any of the game's classes. So you could make a wise wizard, you could make a deft wizard, you could make a strong wizard even. Or if you use the rare classes, you could make a brave wizard or a fortunate wizard. So. Uh, the character concepts are multiplied by the classes. Uh, they're not equal to the classes. Uh, and that's a that's a very important difference, I would say, because uh, that's the mechanic behind uh, the renowned flexibility of uh, the White Hat character generation.
0: I think that's very interesting that you still have a lot of structure where you can build on, but you have... So many interesting options, and they all make sense um, the example you give in the book is an elf fighter um, and you could be a strong elf fighter uh, a deft elf fighter or a wise elf fighter and you know the players can kind of see there you know what what the differences would be
1: yeah it, it turned out really well and it, it was even better than I thought uh, because there's no way that you can see all the cool stuff that uh, that the players can make when when you when you're designing a game when you're Sold a few thousand copies, you are going to see like really cool concepts that you had no idea was uh, possible. So that's one of the things that uh, I'm most happy with uh, about White Hack, and that continues to surprise me. Right.
0: So, um, are, are the wise, is the wise class the only class that has access to magic?
1: Well, if you play a wise wizard, you can say that you are aligning your vocation with the class. So the wise class is the most obvious class to choose for, uh, for magic. But uh, if you want, you could, for example, make a deft uh, wizard. And you would still be using magic, but you would resolve magic in the manner of the deft class instead of in the manner of the wise class. And in this particular case, it would mean that uh, your magic would be uh, petty Because uh, the Deft class can only do the nigh impossible with their abilities. They they can't make the completely impossible uh, like the uh, Wise class can. So so there's a slight difference in uh, how you make, uh, how much magic you can use depending on which class you choose.
0: Excellent. Okay. Um, And are there. Uh, any powers, any special abilities um, that uh, beyond, beyond magic that are worth mentioning for the other classes as well?
1: Yeah, sure, there are. Uh, my favorite is probably uh, the Brave class, which is one of the rare classes. And the Rare class is something that you can't pick uh, from the beginning. You can only pick it as an explicit offer that the referee makes once uh, your former character has died. And it's a kind of consolation prize. Remember what I said, that I, I, I tend to die a lot when I play role-playing games. <laughs> uh, and, and this kind of takes away some of the pain from having one of your favorite character uh, characters die. So, so when you die with uh, your regular character, the referee might say, well, okay, you can make a new character following the regular uh, rules, or uh, you can take this character uh, concept that I'm offering you now. You are allowed to make the parties... Guide in the brave class, if you want. Uh, so that's the way you can get access to the rare classes, and and the brave class is, is kind of cool because it's an underdog uh, class. So it's not a uh, your hero, your regular hero type, but it's rather the type that you find in fiction, like the the gardener or uh, the bard that is really bad at singing, or or the plumber who goes on adventure. That that's the type of uh, of um, uh, do that you you would be playing in, in the rare class because every time uh, a rare character, uh, a brave character, fails at something in the game, he gets a comeback die that uh, you can use to add later uh, in order to uh, improve your chances or increase your damage or uh, something, like, something like that. And that's an example of a very different mechanic. so. It means that if you make uh, a brave wizard instead of a wise wizard or a deft wizard, all of those three cases play very differently. You have to make different kinds of decisions for them uh, as you play them, and they will feel distinctly different also as you play them.
0: Excellent. And then um, you do have a species uh, in, in the place of, of a race, which is one of the, the groups right, that you had mentioned. It's... Um sort of optional, correct?
1: Yeah, it is in the sense that if you don't pick a species group, uh, you are considered to be in the norm group of the game world. And in most cases, that would be a human. But of course, you can imagine campaigns where, where the norm group is some other kind of, of species. But yeah, species is, is a group, just like vocation is a group, and just like uh, your affiliations uh, are groups. So species is, is a group.
0: And for species, we have the the standard array of fantasy uh, races to choose from, as far as elves and dwarves and things like that, right?
1: Yeah, if you want to, it depends on on the game world. in In, in many a uh, in many a game, uh, you would have elves and, and halflings and, and dwarves and stuff like that. But uh, you don't have to. You you can play in a completely different setting where you would have very different uh, species. And the cool thing about it is that you use those groups, they grow over time, so you might jot down, let's say that you are playing a a crow, a crow bard, some kind of uh, bird creature, that's your species, and you don't have to know what that means when you start the game, but as you go along and as you uh, use your groups and your species groups, The concept of the crew species uh, tends to emerge over time as you play the game because each time you use a group, be it a species group or a vocation group or or an affiliation group, uh, the way that it is used in the game means that it will say something about the game world. So over time the players tend to contribute to the game world as they play, organically uh, and automatically.
0: Excellent. All right. And so how, um, in what other ways might the uh, choosing those affiliations, I mean, do they they impact the characters mechanically at all?
1: Yeah, they do. Uh, You could say that each time a group is relevant to the actions that your character is trying to perform, the groups are going to give her uh, a boost a greater chance of success or let the character avoid any drawbacks from that you would have if you didn't have the groups for example if if you are playing uh, a deft thief uh, thief would be your vocation and if you're uh, using lock picks to open a door uh, having though having a thief as your vocation lets you do that without drawbacks but if you're playing a deft fighter, you're not trained to use uh, lockpicks and you don't have a relevant uh, vocation group which means that you get a penalty. So uh, the groups tie into their kind of skill system uh, as well, I guess you could say.
0: In the case of species, as opposed to a defined, you know, boost to an attribute or something like that, if I'm a dwarf. I might be able to gain advantage or get a, a, a bonus in some ways when I'm doing something with stone or delving into a uh, an underground cavern or something like that. Is that, yeah, is that the idea? Yeah, exactly.
1: That, that, that's exactly it. But also, you, uh, the player puts the group next to one or two, uh, in the case of species groups, uh, next to one of her uh, attributes. So if you're playing uh, a dwarf, and you, place, you get to play the species, uh, place the species groups next to two attributes. If you place dwarf next to charisma uh, and strength, it would have an even greater weight if the thing that you're doing uh, uses strength or charisma. So this way, uh, if you play, let's say you play a strong dwarven fighter, and I play a strong dwarven fighter as well, we might still end up with pretty different characters because we place... Uh, the species group, with different attributes. You might place uh, your uh, dwarf group next to strength and charisma, while I might place it next to constitution and intelligence. So it's a good example of the kind of uh, nuance that uh, Whitehack allows.
0: Right, okay. And, and the other groups, as far as like if I'm a member of the Assassin's Guild or something like that, do those also get placed next to attributes, yeah, or is they, it just they, the species? They
1: do, and they are used similarly uh, in, in the sense that as a member of the Assassin's group, you might claim that uh, yeah, I know what that poison could be and you would get a bonus to a, to a skill roll. But having an affiliation group also means that you can get uh, protection from that guild, or you might hire henchmen from that uh, guild or you might uh, get some a piece of information because you're a member of that, uh, of that guild.
0: And um, is there a limit to the number of associations that you can pick? Is that determined by the the, the referee?
1: It's dictated by uh, the class tables. Uh, so depending on, on your class, you have a, a particular number at every level, a number of groups that you are allowed to have if you have really low stats, if you have a, an attribute that is, you rolled your att- attribute and and you roll poorly, you end up with like constitution 4 or something. You do get an extra affiliation group. Uh,
0: because of the poor score, you get a, an affiliation to just uh, help alleviate some of the the difficulty you're saying,
1: yeah, and I think that you could justify that by saying that someone as, uh, like, if you're playing a really scrawny, <laughs> scrawny dude, uh, maybe he's uh, spent a lot of time getting help and know more people, so he gets an extra affiliation group because uh, his his poor stats uh, has made it more important for him to to make friends and get affiliations.
0: And the uh, the abilities themselves, I know we mentioned that they are uh the, the same sorts of abilities that we would see in uh, other d20 games Th- those are always determined by dice roll as well
1: uh, let me see i think that it's only your attributes and uh, your hit points that are determined by by dice uh, everything else the the player either gets to pick uh, or it's in it's in the class table
0: and is it the 3d6 um,
1: Ability, yeah, 3d6 in order per ability, and that's how I run my games. I know that there are a lot of referees who run them a bit differently, but I think that uh, you don't have to have very high stats in uh, in White Hack to to have fun, you can use the groups to uh, alleviate the the difficulties that a poor attribute means. So, so if I, I roll up this guy who has like Strength uh, 6 and Dexterity 3 and I end up with Charisma 4. It's like a, a really crappy guy. And I might uh, turn to the referee and say, hey, could I could I please play this one as a brave character? Because I'm going to fail a lot and I will need those comeback dice that I talked about earlier. Uh, and if I'm your referee, I would say, sure, you, you can. That was like the shittiest attributes I ever did. see. So you can play that one as as a brave uh, character. And and that choice of class and the way you place your, your groups, you can place your groups on the bad uh, attributes, it would make that, that do perfectly playable. Um, that's another thing that I like about White Tactics. It's fine to have the 3D6 uh, in order.
0: Okay, and as far as um, the sorts of bonuses that you'd get from... Your affiliations and from your classes and those sorts of things um are th- how are those bonuses uh applied then in in gameplay um obviously it vary a little bit but um from uh from the standpoint of dice rolls and things like that how how would it how would it apply there
1: well let's see you you're playing this deft uh, thief and you uh, arrive at uh a vault door or just a, a chest with a lock on it uh, and uh, you would tell me as your referee that uh, hey uh, i have the the thief vocation and i'm going to pick this lock using dexterity and my my lock picks and i would say okay that's perfectly uh, all right you get to use two dice and you get to pick the best one when you roll so that's how it's resolved mechanically. It's similar to the uh, advantage-disadvantage mechanism, but uh, I'd like to point out that (laughs) Witek came out in 2013 before 5th edition. It's an old trick, so it's not mine, but uh, I didn't name it advantage-disadvantage, because no one had (laughs) those names weren't around, so I call it uh, getting a positive double roll, or a negative a double roll. and I and I also think that it's better to use this double row mechanic uh, for uh, to to re, to represent skill and training uh, than to use it for advantage, like you do in fifth edition. Because that would mean that uh, all the advantages become the same, and player skill comes comes into play less than it should.
0: Okay, there's also room for the uh, referee to add. A numeric bonus too, if they if they feel it's necessary as well, right? Yeah,
1: and and instead of having the advantage mechan- uh, mechanics from, from fifth edition, you have that option to to add or subtract from the attribute used. And this means that you can add like this is a really hard action, it's minus ten, or uh, that was a really smart solution, it's plus five. And I think the ability, uh, the possibility to add. numeric or subtract the numeric value uh, is much more suitable to handle uh, difficulty uh, than the advantage mechanism
0: sure and uh in the system though on the roll of a 20 which uh, a lot of players are used to that being a great thing regardless of what the goal is, a 20 is a, is a total failure, right? It's a critical failure? Yeah, yeah,
1: it is. If you want to roll a crit, you have to roll your number, your, your target number, uh, your, your attribute uh, score exactly. So if I have uh, strength uh, 13, uh, 13 is a crit and 20 is a fumble. And I know that there are a lot of players who, uh, who don't like this. They are very used to 20 being something good, but you just have to come around and learn. Uh, Twenty is a fumble.
0: Absolutely no, I think the um, I think having to nail your number is a, a very interesting way to do it. And obviously you have to do that because there's there's a range implicit. You can't say a one is always well, I guess you could.
1: No, you can't because uh, you got the armor class mechanic. Uh, otherwise, one would be great because it's a number that everyone can see. Now you have to know the, the, the score to know if it's a crit or not. So I would have loved to to be able to use one, but. Uh, that wouldn't work with the arm class uh, system, because as soon as someone wears a chainmail, uh, which is four, and you are roll a one, well, that's a miss.
0: Right, that's true. Yeah, so, because it's, it's above and below the range. Exactly. Um, okay. All right. Are there any other distinct or unique mechanics that um, we didn't cover that you wanted to, to mention as well?
1: I think that... Uh, uh, I would like to mention the new mechanic, one of the new mechanics in third edition, which is is the the base mechanic. Uh, Base is a new concept in in Whitehack. It wasn't at all in in the previous editions. But having a base means basically that there's something uniting uh, the group of uh, characters. It might be like uh, a time machine or some other vehicle. It might be uh, a headquarters, uh, like a castle or uh, an underwater base or something, or it might be a leader like an arch wizard or uh, a child that you need to protect or something else. All of these things are, are called bases and uh, the ba- the new uh, rules for base uh, bases in, in in third edition uh, allows you to play those kinds of, of stories following the arch wizard or uh, trying to bring that uh, child to a your parents, or use your time vehicle to, to fix um, the present by going into the past or into the future, and the mechanic basically works like a combination of the miracle mechanism that we talked about before, and another mechanism which we, hasn't, uh, we haven't mentioned, uh, which is the corruption mechanic, a kind of. Uh, how far do you dare to go mechanic, you have a value that increases and uh, you may choose at any time to, to take the con- consequences of an increasing uh, value. It's a long story but uh, those two mechanics are used for for bases uh, uh, and it means that you can use your base to give you an advantage, to save your ass when you really need it. Uh, but as you use your base you will also create problems for your base and change your base. So uh, the base mechanic uh, lets you play new kinds of stories that are iconic to the fantasy uh, genre, uh, but they also generate new adventures all the time, and new problems for the players to, to solve. Uh, and I'm really excited about that m- mechanic. And I've already seen that uh, there are people planning uh, Baby Yoda campaigns based on, on uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> the rules for a basis so.
0: yeah absolutely and so the um you had also mentioned the the and I, I think the base mechanic is is very interesting as well um i of course was thinking of it in terms of a location but um you know the the ideas when, it, when i first heard of it but the idea that you know it could be a person or anything else really that's that's really fascinating you mentioned the the corruption mechanic and um that's something that a, a player can choose to take the the penalties of is that right
1: uh, yeah, in a way, uh, first of all, the, the corruption mechanic, it's not obligatory, uh, neither uh, is the mechanic for basis. It, it, it's, one, it's a part of the game that is optional, so it's in, in the chapter for uh, optional rules in 3rd in, in edition. And you use it if you play a setting where uh, some kind of corruption is is very important, like you, if you play uh, in uh, for Renaissance uh, Europe uh, and the struggle against... Chaos, or, or if you play some kind of post-apocalyptic game with a lot of radiation, or if if you're playing a, a horror game where encounters with uh, something horribly old and evil makes you crazy, you would use the the corruption mechanic, and uh, it means that each time you are uh, subjected to something that is potentially corrupting, uh, your your uh, you have a value, a corruption level that rises. And each time it rises, you have the option to either uh, try to make a save, in which case you would reduce your corruption level. Or you can say, uh, no, I'm not going to save it this uh, this time. I can't afford having a consequence right now, so I'm going to wait. But you don't get to save until uh, your corruption value has risen uh, further. This uh, is what I meant before when I said that it's... a uh, it's a kind of dare game. How, how far uh, do you dare to go down the uh, road of corruption before you try to save? And the greater uh, the value is uh, when uh, when you save, uh, the greater the potential consequences of a failed save might be. So if you have a corruption level of, of 8 or 9, I don't remember what that does, but it's not good. <laughs> and it's going to show. Uh, depending on what corruption means in your particular game.
0: Alright, so in some ways it could be used like a sanity mechanic that we see in some other games.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's a kind of sanity mechanic. That is one of my favorite mechanics. There's an article in... I don't remember the name of the of the magazine. There was a magazine in, in the 80s where the guys who made... The Call of Cthulhu game. They explained the experiments they uh, they made when designing the sanity uh, mechanics, uh, and it's a, a brilliant article and it's a brilliant mechanic. So uh, this is obviously a, a kind of sanity mechanic, yes.
0: It's cool that you left it open um, in in your game, where it could be sanity, it could be radiation, it could be some kind of evil, it could be anything that you want it to be but just having it in there and having it as an option, uh, even though it is in the optional rules, I think that that's very interesting, could lead to some very interesting gameplay.
1: Yeah, and you can combine it with the magic system as well if you want. You can have uh, some miracles. Might uh, You might pay for them using corruption rather than hit points also. There's all, all kinds of, of tricks you can pull. Uh,
0: do you have any specific examples of how any of the sort of more unique mechanics to white hack led to great gameplay either in your playtesting or in, in your own personal play or anything like that, whether it be the, the corruption mechanic or anything else.
1: I think that uh, I was most surprised with uh, the option uh, mechanic because it started as a simple attempt to improve upon the mechanic that I used for my first game, the October game from 2006. Uh, that was a really crappy <laughs> mechanic for, for chases and uh, it was a steampunk game so you had these kind of uh, uh, steam cars that you would use for a race and it was a horrible mechanic for uh, for chases so uh, this is why I, I designed uh, the auction mechanic after reading some forum post about I think it was the, was it the James Bond game that has uh, an auction mechanic that you can use for uh, uh, for auctions and that would that would be the mechanic that is most similar to uh, the white hat a white hat auction but what i discovered was that it was so much uh, more flexible than uh, just for chases immediately i realized that hey you could use this for uh, like breaking into a vault system or you could use it to to fight those lesser enemies coming at you typical problem in role-playing games because it takes a lot of time to resolve while in a movie or in a book it's a quick scene and you want it to be a quick scene in the game uh, as well.
0: Sure, absolutely. Uh, were there any um, particular mechanics or anything that didn't work that you decided, I know you, you improved on things like the, the auction mechanic, but was there anything that, that didn't work that you decided you had to get rid of, any failed experiments
1: there? Well, the failed experiments, uh... I sorted them out for 3rd uh, edition, so uh, I tried to make the base mechanic for 2nd edition, but I couldn't make it work, uh, but in 3rd edition it, it works. So it's, I don't know if I can remember. It was a mistake not to include the, uh, the Zero Up uh, armor class system in 1st edition. I know I could do it, but I decided that there was a kind of quirk factor involved in having a roll under system, but uh, keeping the the armor class system from, from the original game. So uh, that was a mistake, because right after I had published first edition, there was a lot of voices saying that, hey, we can't remember if we should roll under or above. <laughs> This is confusing, uh, and why is it not streamlined? And I went, Hey, it's not streamlined because quirky is fun. <laughs> but I was wrong, so in, in second edition, I I'm included uh, the current system for Pass. But I'm sure there are other mistakes that I've, uh, I've made, but they are yet to be uh, discovered. I think, though, that uh, White Hack <laughs> <laughs> is, is quite a solid game by now, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty mature. So if something is wrong with it, uh, uh, it would probably be something of the, the new mechanism that i introduced in third edition. Those can still be perhaps shaky, but I don't think so.
0: Well, as we're speaking, it's reached uh, gold on Drive Through RPG. so... Yeah, um, I got a medal!
1: Yeah,
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah I saw your, your tweet about that. He that <laughs> said something... Uh, the effect of what was it exactly that you you had tweeted out about that about the medal Oh, uh, i
1: remember i tried to remember the last time i got a medal and i was in school i was 14 and I, we had this uh, this guy at our school he was like super fast he was one of sweden's fastest 14 uh, year olds and he always won all the uh, uh, all the competition but once he was ill and uh, then i won i got a gold medal but that was the last time And I had no idea that was, uh, I'm pretty new to this stuff with with selling PDFs, so uh, I I bet this isn't new at all for for anyone else but me, really. But I was so surprised to find that there was a medal and uh, that it was gold, so I had to find out what it meant. But yeah, I got the gold medal after about a week. I mean, it's not surprising. I
0: think White Hack is one of the more recognizable, or at least recommended, osr games out there and so that didn't surprise me at all but i i thought that tweet was rather rather amusing uh so i did want to did want to bring that up <laughs> yeah it's not i mean it's not every game that gets gets a medal on drive Through rpg and there's different i forget what's if there's something above like there's like electrum and platinum and whatnot and it could it could climb to those easily as well but i guess my, my point there was that uh the it's got a gold medal. there's enough people who have downloaded it that if there's something that you know needs to be worked out somebody will will mention it somewhere and it'll it'll probably get back to you if there's a a fourth edition or something. but going through it myself, I mean it looks uh, it looks great i don't i don't I can't think of anything any areas of anything you know usually you read through a game and there's you know one or two things you want to tweak here and there with this one it's so well constructed that there's really Nothing I want to do other than play it by the book. i that makes um, me very
1: happy to to hear. But uh, uh, like I said, I'm sure there's something. There always uh, is. There's no way to predict all the different game styles and what you might come across. And uh, I'm only one guy. There's not a there's not a firm here or uh, an army of designers uh, working on on White Hack. So. I'm sure that there will be something, but I also think that Whitehack is quite a solid uh, game. Uh, I don't think there's been any actual bug in Whitehack uh, during all of 2nd uh, edition, and that's six years of thousands of, of uh, players playing Whitehack. So it should be pretty stable. If I find something happen in 3rd edition, I will know. Uh, let's see. Yeah, absolutely.
0: So you mentioned that that you're the sole creator. Obviously, you have somebody doing art for you as well.
1: Actually, he's dead. Uh, The art in third edition uh, was made by Albrecht uh, Dürer, uh, and he died in uh, the 15th century, I think, or the 16th century. So uh, that art is very old. (laughs)
0: Well I should have researched that better. Uh, I mean it looks it looks very it looks old. I remember looking at it and thinking like, oh wow, these look like legitimate wood prints and I guess they might be they are.
1: <laughs> All I did was like uh, I, I, I circled in on on parts of his uh, uh, famous uh, etchings and, and wood prints and used those. I, I manipulated uh, them a little bit uh, as well. So if you find something ugly in them, that's me that's not Albrecht yeah so but yeah they are they are old i got asked by someone who's doing your art i want to i want to commission him and i said you're out of luck it's long done <laughs> <laughs> be,
0: be rather hard uh, yeah but um how do you what's your your play testing process then as far as um, how do you you mentioned that you 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 played it with your daughter and you play it with uh, it sounds like an old group as well is that how you work out the kinks and those sorts of things
1: Yeah, I have two kinds of uh, game testing. You would call it. One is like a laboratory, which means that I test something and I do my uh, math and I test it again and again until I'm happy with it. But then you have to play it, and not just play it like, let's do a playtest, but play it for real. Play a campaign, play a couple of adventures, try to run it in uh, with a different setting than uh, what it was originally designed for. You, you have to play it in the real, so to speak. And kids are great for that, because you, you, you will discover when something is poorly explained, or doesn't work, or is unintuitive, and so are old guys. <laughs> They can't handle too much crunch, so, so both of those groups, the kids and, and the old dudes, uh, are great for, for playtesting. But I also think that uh, the concept of playtesting may be a bit understood in game design, at, at least if you're uh, a small print or uh, an independent designer like I am. Uh, a lot of people think that playtesting means uh, making sure that this game will work for anyone statistically. Uh, but usually that's not what they do. They test it in like five or six groups or maybe even in 20 groups. But uh, in order to to make sure statistically that a lot of people would like their game, they would have to test it with like, well, uh, a lot more people, like uh, 50 groups or 100 groups, and there are very few companies that uh, make uh, game tests uh, like that. So what they, what they get is a lot of opinions, and... I think that uh, having two steady and different groups that you can play with, play for real, and then uh, make laboratory tests and perhaps uh, show it to somebody that you trust that is good at analyzing games, that is a, uh, a much better way to, to go about uh, testing your, your game and working out the things. Excellent. Okay. So,
0: um... I guess with that uh, you'd mentioned the the auction uh, system and things like that. Is there anything else in White Hack that you are you're particularly proud of that you want to mention as well, or is, do we do we pretty much cover everything that you had there?
1: I would like to mention uh, the community. It's it's not in the game, uh, but uh, it's the thing that carries uh, the game. I had never written anything and published in uh, in English, and I didn't know. Uh, anyone outside of my own uh, country and uh, not many players in it either so I just I just made a post and I think it was rpg.net uh, uh, and hoped for the best and I had no idea that uh, so many people would pick up White Hacking and like it and grow into a wonderful community that is there for the game and for other players each and every day and they do a lot for uh, to help everyone out, uh, you know the the Reddit community, the WhiteHack Reddit community. I didn't start it. Uh, I, I'm not moderating it. It's not mine. It's all made by fans who do this for, for nothing because they they like the game, and I would really like to, to point this out and give them a lot of credit. And that's probably the thing that I'm, uh, that I'm most happy about, because WhiteHack really doesn't have much going for it. You know that. There's very little art in in first and second edition. There was no art; it was just uh, typography. And uh, the game kind of there's no commercial either or promotion done for the game. Yeah. Uh, it's just a simple book who trusts its readers to see uh, its value. And the White Hack community uh, they really give a lot back. So all the credit to them. Uh, and that's the, the one thing that I'm most proud of uh, with
0: WhiteHack. Absolutely, I think that's a, a wonderful thing that you have that sort of um, that, that fan base, which is really what they are. I mean, it's uh, people who just love what you've created, and they're not only are they letting you know that, but they're helping in some ways to contribute to it and shape, uh, shape future editions. Um, with that in mind, do you have any future plans for WhiteHack?
1: Well, there's a part of 2nd edition that I didn't include in uh, 3rd edition. 2nd edition had uh, a rudimentary setting and two adventures. And I omitted that in 3rd edition because they need more room. Uh, I wasn't quite happy with the way they turned out in in 2nd edition. So uh, I'm actually going to publish them in their own book, in, in an extended version. Which will be called uh, the White Curse, uh, and which is planned for uh, autumn, if everything goes well. So that's the the most immediate plans that I have for for White Hat.
0: Excellent. Okay. And so, um, so we'll actually have a, a second book in the series to look for there on Drive Through RPG, um, and that'll be a, a setting and a couple of modules. You said.
1: Yeah, I think there will be three. Uh, we call them adventures by tradition in in Sweden. I don't know, maybe we are the only ones who say that, but uh, three modules, yes, uh, would be included in addition to to the setting and perhaps some setting specific uh, rules as well. I'm not promising anything, but uh, I think that I might include that as well.
0: All right, so and then uh, beyond that, do you have any other upcoming projects right now that we should be looking out for?
1: Well, I have uh, Soldacar's Wake is my uh, science fiction uh, game, and I finished uh, uh, the core books uh, last year. and like I said, it's uh, seven hundred page colossus. Uh, but i'm I'm not finished with it. Uh, I want to see uh, I want to see how it turns out and how it is uh, uh, received, and uh, then I'll probably do something about it. Uh, either way, uh, either in the form of uh, a new module for it, uh, or something else. I haven't decided uh, yet, and it, it could be used with White uh, Hack uh, as a setting, or you can even transfer rooms back and forth uh, with a bit of uh, ingenuity uh, back and forth between the games. Uh, so it's not uh, it's not uninteresting for for White Hack. You know, White Hack uh, I think. So that, that would be my, my other up, upcoming project to, to watch out a bit for, I think. Awesome. All right. So, um, where
0: would you like our uh, listeners to go to find White Hack to purchase it uh, or, or download it? Uh, where, where would you direct them?
1: Uh, I would direct them to uh, whitehackrpg.wordpress.com and follow the links from there. That would be the easiest thing. Uh, if you want a, a digital version of Hack, it's uh, sold through drive through RPG. Uh, while uh, the physical copies, the, the books are sold through Lulu. And that is because Lulu offers uh, a particular kind of, uh, of book that's not available on, on drive through RPG. So uh, they take advantage of uh, different publishing uh, solutions they're not in the same place. So the easiest way is to go to whitehackrpg.wordpress.com.
0: Okay, WhiteHackRPG at wordpress.com and we'll of course put a link to that in the show notes for people to go check out. And of course, drive-through RPG and Lulu, I think, are going to be two resources that our, our listeners are very familiar with. So, it'll be very easy for them to, to pick up the book. And where can they go to find you as far as on social media and things like that?
1: Well, I'm not much of a social media guy. I for example, I, I don't have a Facebook uh, account, and I only very recently uh, started using uh, Twitter to to share some some news about my games. But uh, the easiest place to reach me is in the uh, White Hack community, and you will find a link uh, in the same place uh, at the WordPress uh, page. Uh, it's not my community; it's it's a fan community, so it's they who, who own it. But I go there often and. Uh, if you post there I will find it eventually I'll talk to you
0: all right well um, well Christian it's been a pleasure talking to you thank
1: you it's been great coming here like I said I'm I'm honored to have been contacted it was great fun talking to you
0: I'm glad that you enjoyed yourself Christian great to make your acquaintance and uh, stay healthy and I hope you have a wonderful uh, wonderful rest of your night
1: likewise you too thanks a lot
0: Thank you again, Christian, for calling into the Guild Hall, and for giving us a great inaugural episode for Dungeon Designer's Guild. WhiteHack provides tabletop role-playing with a very interesting and comprehensible game that allows players to effortlessly run any adventures or modules from 1974 to the present. So we believe that all listeners should stop by the WhiteHack WordPress page and check out the game on Lulu or DriveThruRPG.com, where... Since this interview was recorded, Whitehack 3rd edition has reached platinum bestseller status, placing it in the top 1.5% of all products. So congratulations, Christian. You got another medal. Before we lock up, we at DDG Pod have to pay our dues. Theme music for our show is the song High Fantasy by the band Gygax. You can find the band and three incredible albums. On their Bandcamp page and many major music streaming platforms. Additional music in this episode was composed by Alexander Nakarada. Logo design for the show was done by Elijonist. Special thanks to Charlie at Negative Modifier Podcast. Without his guidance and advice, this show would not be happening. Also, Hodag RPG, who has done a lot of heavy lifting behind the scenes for this show, and SL McClellan for helping complete this first episode. You can find links to these characters and their projects in our show notes. All right, that concludes the first episode of the first season of Dungeon Designer's Guild. So, all you wise warriors and strong sorcerers, we escaped this dungeon. But remember, next time we might not be so lucky.